Welcome to Scuba Shack Radio, episode 40, recorded Friday, August 28, 2020. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Scuba Shack Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Cincerpino. It's hard to believe that August 2020 is coming to an end, but we still have a lot of diving left here in New England. Our weekends are busy with training and diving through the first week of October, so the episodes will shift a bit from time to time from my normal Sunday releases as I'll be out in the water, a great place to be. We also just surpassed a record number of 90-degree days in a, in a year here in Connecticut. It's difficult to discount the science of climate change. Today's show will follow the original format. First, I'll talk a little bit about our delayed surface marker buoy training. Then I'll provide some inf- interesting information on plastic bag laws. And we'll close out the show with another installment of Sea Hunt. It's still alive. Time to get started. Just over a year ago, I did a segment on how PADI has incorporated the deployment of a surface marker buoy or SMB, as part of their open water certification dives. I talked about how I felt this was an important skill for new open water divers to understand. Today, I want to come back to the SMB and discuss how we've continued to train our students. We just completed an advanced open water class a couple of weeks ago, and for quite a long time, we did five specific dives. In addition to the required navigation and deep dives, we did a peak performance buoyancy, wreck, and a search and recovery dive. As we were preparing for this latest advanced open water class, Monty and I started to think about whether we could or should do something different. And we did. We replaced the search and recovery adventure dive with the delayed surface marker buoy adventure dive. But why did we do that? As we looked at all the options for adventure dives, the delayed SMB dive felt like something that most recreational divers who are going to the advanced class should experience. In that previous podcast, I told you a story about when we got caught in a current and drifted past the boat underwater, and we needed to deploy an SMB while we were on our safety stop. Having the knowledge, skills, and confidence to deploy the surface marker from depth ensured that the boat knew where we were while we were doing our safety shop and made for a quick pickup when we surfaced. 
being comfortable with the reel, how to attach it properly, smooth inflation, all while maintaining our control, kept us safe. From our personal experience, we came to conclude that this skill was probably more valuable to our advanced open water students than the search and recovery dive. We could have replaced the wreck dive, but on the wreck dive, we incorporate some of the navigation skills in, in the wreck dive, so we thought that that was important to keep. And most of our advanced open water divers really won't be getting into or ever using the search and recovery skills. That's just how we thought about it. So, how did it work out? Well, I think it went really well and was very well received by our advanced open water students. They got to experience different types of reels and various surface marker buoys, and then practiced deploying their own SMB with their own reel from about 25 feet, all while working on their position in the water. All the instructors, as well as the students who participated, felt like it was a good call to put this dive into our advanced open water class. It was a great experience and great fun and a skill that will come in handy if and when they ever need it. Also, as instructors who now will routinely teach this dive, we'll keep our skills sharp as well. We tell all of our divers that they should carry a, a surface marker buoy with them. I now feel like we are not only telling them what to carry, we are also committed to training them with this important piece of safety equipment as they progress with their scuba diving education. Last year, Connecticut started the phase-out of plastic shopping bags by instituting a $0.10 per bag fee if you took one out of the store. The plan is to eliminate their use completely within the next year. The reduction in use was phenomenal. We had a bit of a setback as the pandemic hit, and we started using the plastic bags again. But that was only temporary. We're back to charging the $0.10 fee, and discouraging their use. Before the pandemic hit, the state indications were that they had only collected about 25% of what they had estimated on this 10 cent fee. For the period of time that they analyzed, I think the actual revenue collected was $7 million against the projected revenue of $27 million. The fee was working, and it's weaning us off of this waste. Let's hope we stay on track for the complete elimination next year. So that got me thinking about what's going on around the rest of the country. Time for a little more research. And that led me to a place called PlasticBagLaws.org. Now, PlasticBagLaws.org is billed as a resource for legislative bodies considering laws that limit the use of plastic bags. It has been around since 2010, and this website was started by Jenny Romer. Jenny is a lawyer and works for Surfrider Foundation. That's an organization dedicated to fighting plastic and ocean pollutions, allowing beach access, coastal pre preservation, and clean water. 
You can look up Surfrider Foundation to get more on them. So where do we stand right now on plastic bag laws? First, the good news. There are currently eight states that have uniform laws for, for the whole state. And these eight states are California, Connecticut, Delaware, Maine, New York, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. And while Hawaii doesn't have a state law, every county has enacted plastic bag laws, ostensibly making it the ninth state. There are also approximately 500 local bag ordinances in 28 states, including the District of Columbia. On what I consider the bad news size, there are 15 states that have adopted preemptive laws for various reasons that make it difficult to pass local ordinances when the state hasn't taken action, and there are nine states right now with the threat of preemption laws. That means that the states won't act, and they won't let the local municipalities act either. That doesn't seem right to me. I leave it to you to decide how you feel about that. I, for one, support the plastic bag laws. Now, there are three types of plastic bag laws. There's the bag fee that mandates a fee on all carry-out bags. Then there's the ban and fee hybrid, where there's a ban on thin plastic bags and a fee on other carry-out bags. And finally, there's the straight ban on the thin plastic bags only. I also did some research on a site from the National Conference of State Legislators, or NCSL. They indicated that there were 95 bills passed in 2019 and that most of them were bans or fees placed on plastic bags. Sadly, there were still some that preempt local government actions. On the NCSL website, you can also reference the specific bills for each state. I did look at Connecticut House Bill 7424 for 2019. That was the biannual budget, and in Section 355, they referenced that the plastic bag laws that imposed the 10-cent fee on single-use plastic bags at point of sale would go into effect until June 30, 2021, and on July 1, 2021, they would be banned outright. There was a story on the Plastic Bag Laws website from Chicago where they said they put a ban on plastic bags so that the large, and then the large chains switched from the thinner plastic bags to thicker bags. Not exactly what the law was going for. In response, the law was changed to be a seven-cent fee on all carryout bags, and in the first month, the usage dropped 42%. That's effective. Now, plastic bag laws are important to stop windblown litter, minimize the impacts on our marine environment, and improve waste management by not clogging up municipalities' re recycling apparatus. I'm proud to see that Connecticut is one of the few states taking this matter seriously and not preempting action.
It's time for another installment of Sea Hunt, It's Still Alive. And on today's show, we're going back to Season 1, Episode 12, titled Midget Submarine. And Midget Submarine premiered on March 29, 1958. Well, this one is also about a defector, but this time a Soviet defector. The show opens up with Mike helping his friend Bill Kruger test a two-man midget submarine in a cove off of San Diego. Bill is the inventor of the two-man submarine. Mike is explaining all the potential uses of the sub, along with its range and other characteristics. He says he thought they were alone, but it turns out they are being watched. The camera zooms in on a man and woman on the top of a cliff over the clove. They are watching Bill and Mike work with the submarine. The woman has a Russian accent and is asking the man if he can get Mike to do it. Hmm, do what? He says he can't, but that she needs to ask him. She has a nice smile, he says. She quips back, men don't do things because a woman smiles. So now Mike and Bill are putting the submarine on a trailer when a bunch of rocks start coming down the cliff. Mike heads up to investigate, and he hears someone coming and is ready to pounce. It's the woman. Mike tells her the equipment is not for public view. The woman says her name is Maria Wenzel, and she needs Mike's midget submarine. Mike is suspicious. He takes her binoculars so he can get her fingerprints for a federal agent because he thinks she's a spy. Now the man shows up. He is Mr. Rossum, and he is a federal agent. They tell Mike that Maria's father is John Wenzel, a Soviet mathematician. Mike says, Wenzel is more dangerous to America than the H-bomb. Well, they tell him that Wenzel wants to defect. Mike says, he's not into the cloak and dagger. It's not his line. The next scene shifts to Mike returning with his boat to Marineland when on the dock he meets Eugene Laszlo. Mike recognizes him as the Nobel Prize winner in physics. He's impressed, and they head off in Mike's car to the office. Then we shift to a scene where Laszlo is using a globe to explain how Wenzel is going to be on a research ship heading across the Pacific. It's a secret mission for the Soviets to track an America's newest satellite. Mike lights up a pipe as he's listening to Laszlo. The plan is to intercept the ship 3,000 miles from Japan and 2,000 miles from Hawaii. Well, now Maria and Rossum walk in. Maria has the plans of the ship so Mike can find Wenzel. Rossum says there's no money and no medals. Mike takes the pipe out of his mouth and says something like, this is that he's sure Bill would risk the midget sub for this mission. Mike says, he'll do it. So Mike, midget sub, and team take an ocean liner to Hawaii. From there, they're going to transfer the midget sub to a naval vessel. That ship looks like a submarine rescue ship. After long days at sea, they find a target ship and Mike is off in the midget sub. He dives the sub deep as they approach the Soviet ship and comes up right alongside. 
Mike climbs up the side of the ship in full gear, wetsuit, mask, and triple tanks. The ship is the Zvoboda. He's creeping around in triples, leaving footprints, hiding behind hatches, and climbing down ladders. He finally gets to John Wenzel's cabin, startles him, and shows him a locket from his daughter. Now John is convinced that Mike is there to help him. Mike tells him about the midget sub, but John doesn't know how to use the scuba gear. No problem. Mike gives him a two-minute lesson on how to wear and clear the mask and how to breathe and clear the regulator. Mike says, whatever you do, never hold your breath. Just as they are ready to leave, another scientist comes in. He wants to go over some math problems with Wenzel. Mike is hiding behind a curtain, dripping, water is spilling out. Finally, Wenzel tells him he's right, and Professor Gorin leaves, but he barges back in and sees Mike. Wenzel convinces Mike that Gorin is a friend and will help them escape. Gorin wants to go too, but there's not enough room. He says, good luck. Perhaps my turn will come soon. Mike and Wenzel climb down to the submarine while Gorham is on the deck watching them pull away. Just then, a seaman comes up. Gorham distracts him. Just as he's ready to leave, he hears the sub. It's a fish, it's a fish, says Gorham. Playful dolphins. The seaman is convinced and leaves. Now the sub is flying back to the Navy ship. The film is really sped up. Mike tells us that it took a few hours to get back to the ship. And as they climb aboard, there's Laszlo, and he greets Wenzel by saying, Welcome to the West. The final shot of this this, uh, episode is the moon shining behind the American flag on the ship's mast. That's Midget Submarine from 1958, in the middle of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Perhaps Seahunt was trying to convince others to defect as well. This is a funny one because Lloyd Bridges was involved in the Hollywood blacklisting of actors suspected of being communists. Ironic, isn't it? We know now that Mike and Lloyd were true blue American heroes. Sea Hunt was such a great TV show, and I always look forward to picking out an episode to review. Mike certainly gets into all sorts of challenging situations. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Thank you to everyone who continues to listen. It is greatly appreciated. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast app, and don't forget to give us a rating. Also, tell your friends about Scuba Shack Radio. Well, that's it for today. Stay safe, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks with more Scuba Shack Radio. Goodbye.
Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Talk to you next time.